era. In the modern era, we have for some reason drifted dramatically away from what you presented this morning as a biblical understanding of prayer, as we've talked about in church many, many times. Um, it is interesting to, to see the digression in our understanding of who... It's not about prayer, but our understanding about who God is over time. Because originally, our understanding of God is the sovereign one who is in control and who is, uh, has a plan and is orchestrating that plan, and we are graciously part of that plan all the way through history. But today, it has morphed into God is a God who serves me. Does that make sense? And that is not a prayer problem. It is an understanding of God problem. It's been interesting since, since my neck issue and everything else that went along with it, how often I've had various Christians come up to me and ask me how they could pray for me. And the answer I always give them has been, I start off with, please don't pray that I'll be healed. And I do it partially to be provocative, but I do it purposefully as well because I want to create a conversation. Please don't pray for me that I'll be healed. Well, why not? Because that's not really what's important. It just isn't. Would I like to be healed? Well, of course. In fact, Ken and I were talking this morning about how I'd really like to have the headaches gone. It'd be kind of nice. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, who wants to live with headaches all the time? Jim, do you want to live with coughing the rest of your life? Well, no, of course not. And we could talk about anybody with any physical ailments. Do we want to live with that the rest of our lives? Well, no. Emotionally, I certainly do not. But I'm reminded of, for example, the passage you mentioned in Philippians. And I'm reminded again of Paul where he says, if I live, I live for Christ. And if I die, it's for Christ. So therefore, whether I live or I die, it's for Christ. That's a radical perspective. In other words, his point is, if I live, it's for glorifying Christ. If I die, the point of my dying is for glorifying Christ. And so the, what is important is what? Glorifying Christ. And acknowledging that I'm not the sovereign one means that I acknowledge that someone else is. And when I acknowledge that someone else is the sovereign one, then I find myself, especially if that sovereign one is also loving and merciful and just and caring and everything else that he is and his attributes. When I understand that, then I find myself, because I'm a recipient of his love, that I want to what? Submit to his love and his plan and his goals and his objectives. And I want his goals and objectives to be mine, right? I desire it to be mine. And so, and that's exactly what Zwingli was talking about. So, you know, although emotionally I'm like, ah! Right? I know at the same time that there is a reality that in, 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 engulfs my reality. Because I can't understand it all, but God does. And He's at work. And as a result, I find myself not just submitting, which is what an Islamic would say, you just submit to the sovereign one. Quite to the contrary, we would say we submit, but that's because there's something else going on. It's because he loves us. And we have a relationship with him. And he's good. And he's not arbitrary. And he's at work. And he's got a redemptive plan. And because we've been grafted into the vine, we go on and on and on, right? And when we understand those things, then they begin to inform our view of our own lives and our own world and our own substance. And everything begins to change. And Zwingli is a great example of that. And we've lost it. And I say that to say, it's been amazing to me in the last 14 weeks or however long it's been, 13, 14 weeks, how often I've had Christians confused. When I say don't pray for my health, pray this way instead. Pray that way instead. And it's more focused on God's glory. They're confused by that. And I find oftentimes they'll say, okay, but I'm also going to pray for your health. And I respond to that and I say, okay, if you want to pray for my health, it's fine. But you don't know what God's will is on that. So what you ought to be praying for, if it's your will, to heal him. But you'd better be perfectly fine with the idea that if it's not his will, then I won't be. 
And if you're not fine with that, then you know what you really ought to be praying for is that God changes what? Your heart. Does that make sense? Because even in the best case scenario, let's just be honest, even the best case scenario, God perfectly heals my neck, takes away all my symptoms of my concussion, and everything else. And I'm back to square one, and even better, stronger, better, faster than before. Okay, $6 million man, right? Okay. Um, even if that's the case, thank you, Jim, for smiling and smirking. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other issue. Um, the simple reality is, all it does is delay the inevitable, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It just delays the inevitable. The Bible's pretty clear, because sin came into the world, what's going to happen? Death comes. It's here. So, wouldn't the point be as Christians that we'd be more focused on the eternal? Wouldn't it? It makes a lot of sense, but it's informed by the truth. It's not, it's not formed by, well, I've got to just change my praying. It's like, who is God? Sorry about continuing your confession here, but I just really appreciated it. It made my mind think a little bit about just personally what's going on in my life right now as I've been challenging people with this. Well, with that in mind, we're, we're in Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Acts 13. Let me just say before we read the text, we are um, entering into what has been typically labeled the first missionary journey of Paul. It's chapters 13 and 14, where he goes off on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. This is the first passage in the scriptures where he's mentioned as Paul, not Saul. It could be a transition time. It's an interesting study for a variety of reasons, and we're not, even in these first 12 verses, going to be able to probe all of the things that go on in this text. What I want to do is, is I want to make a number of observations this morning. And that's my goal. Just make some observations and try to make some applications and let you take that as like a, a priming of the pump to consider it further. Because what we're going to do in our observations this morning is this. We're going to lay out some groundwork for a variety of things. We're going to lay out some groundwork for continuing learning how to study the Scriptures. This is, there's some really important things we need to grapple with here that's going to help us how we think through the Scriptures. <clears throat> but it's also some groundwork for helping us to understand all of the missionary journeys that, that Paul's going to go through. Most people say there were three. I would argue there were four missionary journeys, but... We'll figure that out when we get there. Um, but but it, it's helpful for us to understand the flow of the text from here to the end of the book, basically. So we're going to lay out some real good groundwork here. So again, we're just going to do some observations. Before we get into the text, however, a lot of these observations, as a matter of fact, all the observations we're going to do this morning are going to be observations about what would be described as descriptive statements in the Scriptures. You've heard me talk about that before. There are two different categories are what? Descriptive and, anybody remember? Prescriptive. Descriptive and prescriptive passages and statements uh, and verses. All, everything in the scriptures fall into those two categories. If we, I would argue if we screw up descriptive, prescriptive understandings in the scriptures, we will always go off the rails in our interpretation. Always, always, always. The scriptures fall into two categories. And some of the biggest and gro most grotesque failures of interpretation of scriptures is this very thing. Thinking that descriptive passages are prescriptive and thinking that prescriptive passages are descriptive. The best way I could describe those two when I use those two terms are if you are sick and you go to the doctor, you go into the, into the room, the doctor comes in and he begins to check you out. As he checks you out, he does all sorts of things. He listens with his stethoscope. He observes. He feels. He pushes. He asks questions. And when all that is done, he looks at you and he says, you have, to use the modern situation, you have COVID-19. Make sense so far? That's descriptive. He described the circumstance. 
What do you have at this point? You have an identification, correct? You have an identification. The doctor said it is COVID-19. That's all you have. What he says to you next will be prescriptive. Because from here he's going to, well, one of the first things he's probably going to do is going to give you a prescription, right? He's going to give you a prescription. He's prescribing something that you must do if you have any hope of getting better, correct? Does that make sense? And then he's going to go on after he gives you the script, or nowadays just electronically sends it in, he's going to prescribe to you that you need to be washing your hands regularly. He's going to prescribe to you that you need to wear a mask. He's going to prescribe to you that you need to keep social distance. He's going to prescribe to you that you need to isolate yourself. He may even prescribe that you need to go into ICU. Right? Does that make sense so far? Those are all prescriptions. If you are in the doctor's office and he describes to you something, not something that is well known like COVID-19, which you know pretty much what the prescriptions are going to be, but instead he describes to you that you have malaria. Malaria is not common in America, is it? It's not common at all, unless you were in the military. You probably don't know a whole lot about malaria. So you know it's not good. But you go in and the doctor says you have malaria. If you say, okay, thank you very much, doc, shake his hand and walk out, what good is that? It's no good at all, is it? You desperately need his prescriptions, correct? Because you don't have a clue where to go. So the prescription is valuable. At the, at, on the other side of the coin, if you go in and he checks you out and says nothing about description and just prescribes things to you, what good is that? You have no impetus to stay with it, right? You have no impetus to follow the prescriptions, do you? Because you ha- you're missing something, right? You have no knowledge. You have no description. You've got to have both, right? They both come into play, but one needs the other. Both need each other, but the, the prescription is desperately in need of the description. And it depends upon the description. Otherwise, I have no confidence in the doctor, do I? How do I know he did what was right? How can I check him? How can I make sure that these were the right prescriptions? I, I, I got to have the description. Well, the reason why I say that is because there, the scriptures are full of descriptions and the scriptures are full of prescriptions. Sometimes the descriptions are describing who Jesus is. Sometimes the descriptions are describing who the Father is. Sometimes the descriptions are describing who, who the Holy Spirit is. Sometimes the descriptions are just describing people and their activities. Sometimes the, the, the descriptions are describing the church and how it functions. What I'm trying to say is that the prescriptions of the scriptures are absolute. They're clear. Aren't they? Like, if the scripture commands us to pray, is there any wiggle room? Should you pray? No, it's right there, right? The, the, the prescriptions are pretty obvious and clear in the scriptures. The descriptions are very different. We have to be very careful when we observe descriptions that we don't take them firstly and most importantly as prescriptions because we do, we're off the rails. We know that's how life functions, but people do it all the time. It's a description, we treat it like it's a prescription. That being said, there are times when descriptions in the scriptures are dramatically and only descriptions. That's all they are. Like, for example, <clears throat> a pure and simple, obvious one is Jesus walked on water. Prescription or description? It's description, isn't it? It describes that he's walking on water. Can I do any prescription off that? Unless it's frozen, you're right. <clears throat> I cannot say because Jesus walked on water, I cannot say in any way at all I should walk on water. Why? Because in no way am I Jesus. Correct? He's Jesus. I'm not. 
or more specifically, he's God, I'm not. When you start moving into descriptions of people and events, that's where context starts to come into play. More and more, context starts coming into play. Is there any... And now we're going to move away from the word prescriptions to are there any principles that potentially come into play? Does that make sense? Are there any pot- potential um, principles that we can, we can carefully, contextually, and accurately pull out of that text that are valuable for us. Notice I avoided the word prescription. I did it very purposefully. If there's no prescription there, there's no prescription. Make sense? If there's no prescription, there's no prescription. End of discussion. However, are there principles that I can say according to not just the near context, but the far context that would say that these are appropriate considerations for how I should approach similar situations. And oftentimes there will be. Oftentimes there will be. But not always. In other words, for example, in the text today you'll be introduced to Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, who will get on a ship and go somewhere. Okay, that's the description, right? They get on a ship and they go to Cyprus. Can I draw out a prescription... Or even a principle. I know we can't draw out a prescription at all. Can I even draw out a principle that when you travel for missionary work that you should take a ship? No. You can't do that. Why? Because there's no near or far context that would say that that's an appropriate application of the description. Does that make sense? That's an obvious one. Some of these are not going to be as obvious. Some get a little bit more challenging. We've got to be more careful about them. We're going to see it. Okay? It's going to come really clear as we work our way through. Let's read the text. I say all that just to say we've got to... Reading the scriptures is, is a thought process. You've got to think. It's not about how do I feel about the text. We've got to think about it. We've got to think about... and there's, there's, If I may say this before I actually read the text, there is a movement that's been popular in Christianity for the last hundred plus years, and that is when you read the Scriptures, God will tell you what it means. So just read it and God will tell you. Oh my goodness, how many times has the train hopped off the rail on that one? God gave us a Scripture. He gave us the immediate context from the Scripture. He gave us the big context of the Scripture called the rest of the book, whatever that book is that you're reading. And then He gave us the greatest context of the Scripture, which is what? the entirety of the text. And can I just submit to you, does God tell us what the text says? Yes, but He uses that. That's the method He uses. We are not allowed to say, well, that's what it means to me. No. No, it means what it meant to God. And we need to wrestle with that from that perspective. Okay? So with that in mind, let's read chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we'll find out in a little bit is Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphros, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, 
You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And there's our text for this, for this morning, the beginning of, of the first missionary journey of Saul, who becomes Paul. Again, we're just looking at some observations. We're going to walk through. I'm going to point out some things. There's many things I'm going to skip over. Again, just priming the pump. You'll notice, first of all, though, that, that in verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 13, you see that uh, the discussion of this church in Antioch. You'll notice that this church in Antioch that was planted two chapters ago, which, by the way, if I may just say this, it's important, that's recent. In the storyline of the book of Acts, it's very recent. It may be as little as a few months. I'm guessing it's probably more like a year or two. Three at best. Okay? So we have this church at Antioch that just recently got planted. You'll notice in this church there are prophets and teachers, and then it lists some of them. One being Barnabas, the, other, the last one being Saul, and, and other ones in between. You notice that? Observation. And this is not, and again, this is a great example of how we take the larger discussion of the Scriptures to find observation, or, I'm sorry, uh, description that has more power than just a historical description. Does that make sense? This statement that I'm mentioning in verse 1 has more power than just and more value than just a historical description color, as it were, for the greater story. Luke identifies this church in Antioch, and I want us to notice it. He identifies this church in Antioch, a relatively recent plant of relatively recently saved people. Correct? And what does Luke describe the church as having? Prophets and teachers. You know what that, those terms later on become? When Paul writes First and Second Timothy and First and Second Thessalonians, they all take on new terms. What? Elders and elders and secondarily deacons. Elders primarily, right? That's what happens identifies them later on as elders, or to put it a different term, mature, to use a generic term, mature what? Mature believers, right? Now, that's what we have in the description here, but we know that Paul told Timothy, hey Timothy, I just planted a bunch of churches in my, in my journey. He's referencing his third missionary journey at that point in time. I planted a bunch of churches on my third missionary journey And Timothy, I need you to do something for me. All the churches I planted are a mess. They need leadership. And so what I want you to do is I want you to follow my steps and I want you to go church to church to church and do something. What does he want him to do? Appoint or find elders in every city. Plural, elders in every city. Now, it's really important that we capture what Paul is telling Timothy is the same as what we see descriptively here. So, in Paul's statement to Timothy, there is a prescription for Timothy, isn't there? Or is it Titus? Actually, it's Titus. I'm sorry. Not Timothy. Titus. It's a prescription. Concussion confuses me once in a while. It's Titus, not Timothy. The description that we read in Paul's statement to Titus is a prescription for Titus and an expectation for Titus as well, isn't there? There's an expectation that elders will be found in a plurality. It's expected that Titus will find that. Here, a church that's relatively recently been planted, what is discovered descriptively? Elders are there. 
right? Prophets and teachers. Elders are there. What does that mean? It means that people, what? If they're truly saved, what? Mature. Don't they? People who are truly saved do find the Spirit at work in them. Now, the backstory to the statement is if they're prophets and teachers, what does that mean? It means that the Spirit has been at work at them, and so the result of the Spirit being at work at them, they are what? They are driven by the love of Christ, to quote Paul, to what? To study and learn and grow and mature. Right? Does that make sense? It's expected that that would happen. I say that because, can I just say this real quickly? That is not expected today. And that should be not new to us. I've said that before. In the average church, that's not expected today. It's expected that forever people will still be children in the faith. The expectation of maturity is not there. It's not expected, using the term that I've used in the past, it's not expected in the average church that, and I'm talking conservative churches, it's not expected that in the average conservative church that people in general, and may I say it this way, at risk of being misunderstood, male and female, it's not expected today that people in general will find themselves growing up into, now listen to my words very carefully, elder-esque type of people. Not that I would, I would argue that women cannot be elders, but they can be elder-esque, right? That is, they can be mature in the Lord to the point of being at an eldership type of level, maturity-wise. Whether you qualify for being elder or not, the expectation is that people who are truly saved will find themselves growing relatively quickly into being elder-esque type of people. But that's not the expectation today, is it? It isn't. Can I just submit this as Exhibit A? You go to your average church that has Sunday school material, Sunday school classes. And you know what everybody, almost every church Sunday school teacher uses? Do they, they work up their own material? Are they using material that they and the elders have worked on together? No. You know what they're doing? They're buying materials from a parachurch organization of somebody else that wrote it, and all they do is read it and, and jot down a few notes and present what that material says. Does that sound like somebody who is able to robustly study the Scriptures? Not even close. But the Scriptures say what? We should what? Study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But when you bring up the subject in the average church, I know because in churches in my past I brought it up repeatedly, why are we using these materials? Why aren't Sunday school teachers developing their own materials? I don't know how to do that, nor do I have the time. What does that mean about the people who would say that? Could I say it says two things at least about them? Probably three. And most importantly, they don't know Jesus the way they ought to. Number two, they don't know how to say the Scriptures. Number three, they're perfectly fine with uncritically teaching what other people say is right. Aren't they? If I don't know how to study the Scriptures and don't have time to study the Scriptures, then I'm taking somebody else and I'm assuming and presuming that it's correct because I don't know how to even evaluate whether it's right or not. Right? I don't have a clue whether to evaluate if it's right or not or how to evaluate. If I can't study it myself, how can I study to check them out? Because they're at least well thought out, aren't they? Right? They're absolutely well thought out. So if I can't even think through the Scriptures myself, how can I make sure that what they're saying is right? And so we take people and we train our children. We don't even know if it's right or not. We don't have a clue. And then you understand the whole marketing behind it. 
that whole marketing design is to sell to the most people possible, which means what? To take away all the specific things that are unique to you and your church. Because that doesn't sell to a large group. And so we end up watering down the message over and over. Is there any wonder that churches are, as a, just using it as an example, in as much of a mess as they are? We have no expectation of maturity in Christ. We have no maturity of growing up into Him who is the head, even Christ. That expectation is gone. But what do we find in, in this observation, first observation in the text? There are elders in this fledgling church. There's elder-esque type of people in this fledgling church. And we know at least two of them, Barnabas and Saul, are robustly mature in Christ already, aren't they? My goodness, if you, all you got to do is read the missionary journey, the first missionary journey, you know Saul and Barnabas my goodness, they, they know the Scriptures, don't they? And the Spirit's at work in them. Spirit, in fact, it even says that in a little bit. Observation number one. Go to verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Two observations here. First one is, is the second one in the text in verse two. And it's real simple and short. This is not a new call. I want you to know that. This is not all of a sudden something totally new happened and a whole new call that never been thought of or heard of before just pops into some leaders' minds. And here it is. Go all the way back to Saul's conversion. And that's exactly what in Acts chapter 9 it says he's going to be, right? He's going to be sent out to go to the Gentiles and he's going to suffer. It's, it's there. This is just a reaffirmation of it. Does that make sense? Total reaffirmation. More importantly, I want you to notice the more important observation. Verse 2, beginning, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, referring not to the church in general at this point, but referring to who? Huh? Yeah, they're worshiping the Lord, but who's worshiping? Not the church general here, right? The leaders, right? The leaders are worshiping. And the leaders are fasting. Which means the leaders are together worshiping. Does this sound like a short time that they're together? It doesn't, does it? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the sense of a half hour meeting, does it? This is a long meeting. They're getting together and they're worshiping together. That is, they're worshiping God. Which means, if they're worshiping God, it means what? Scriptures are open. Right? They're studying the Scriptures. They're talking to each other about the Scriptures. They're talking to each other about the Lord. They're learning, being reminded of, and growing, and the whole thing is Godwardly focused, right? Worship. Making much of God. That's what's happening, right? At the same time, it says, they were what? Verse 2? They are worshiping the Lord and, and fasting. You know, it's interesting, Genesis through Revelation, there's no place in the Scriptures where it's prescribed the need to worship, or to fast. I mean. There's no prescription, command, at least no general command to fast. It's not there. There are lots of descriptions of fasting in the Scriptures. Old Testament and New Testament, there are boatloads of descriptive statements on fasting. So, what, what do we do with this description? Is it merely a historical statement that these leaders at this point in time in Antioch are getting together and worshiping? We know that worship is ever, everywhere and it's also prescribed, isn't it? Right? So this description of fasting is connected to a prescription, not here, but elsewhere throughout the Scriptures, of what? Worshiping. Fasting is a subset or a part of the worship, isn't it, in this case? It absolutely is. So, can I just present something to you? I think there's a real good reason why God nowhere prescribes fasting for Christians. Old or New Testament. I think there's a good reason why it's not prescribed. 
And here's what it is. Well, first of all, let's understand what fasting is. Fasting isn't always fasting or stopping eating. In fact, there are sometimes when, when people forego sleep in order to worship. That's fasting. It's fasting from sleep to study the scriptures in prayer. The scriptures describe several times when that happens. It doesn't use the word fasting, but it's clearly fasting. Fasting is removing something out of my life for a period of time to put something else in. Does that make sense? See, fasting by itself is meaningless. So you fast from food. So what? Who cares? What difference does it make? What's the point of fasting? We'll use food as an example. Is food important? Of course it is. If you don't eat, you what? You die. No question. But the idea is we know food is important but what fasting is is saying, I'm going to lay aside something that is important because something else is more important. And if I may add to the equation, the idea is something else is more important, but I find myself too often screwing up the priority. Does that make sense? I find myself messing up the priority. I find myself, in the case of spiritual things, I know that God is more important and worshiping God is more important than, fast, than, than food. However, I find myself, the way I live life, making the mistake and failing in that I emphasize food over worshiping God. I recognize that happens. Or maybe it's not food, maybe it's something else. Whatever it may be. I recognize that I emphasize a, or B, over A, A being God. And I do it regularly, even though in my heart I know is He is of supreme importance that I've learned and studied Him, I've discovered it. And as I look at my life and look at Christ at the same time, here's something that happens. I'm broken by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I've prioritized so badly. Does that make sense so far? I recognize that I find myself too often prioritizing badly. And I want Christ. I desire Christ because I, I desire His love and I, I, I know His love pours out even when I'm faithless. And I want to respond to His love. And I know I cannot appropriately respond to His love if my priorities continue to be messed up. Does that make sense so far? And so, as a practice that in and of itself does nothing, I'm going to lay aside blank B that I prioritized over A. I'm going to lay it aside for a period of time and focus on worshiping A. Does that make sense? Now, here's what's interesting. I would argue, that although it's not prescribed in the Scriptures, I would argue that the idea is so common in the Scriptures and so commonly connection to prescribed worship that although not prescribed, I would argue that if someone is a worshiper of God, we have to, as we come the Lord recognize that our priorities are messed up. Right? We kind of have to recognize as fallen, flawed human beings that our priorities do get screwed up. That we do overemphasize things and underemphasize Christ all the time. And it's not arbitrary things, but it's almost always the same things, isn't it? Right? Whether it's food, whether it's exercise, whether it's computer games, whether it's news, Facebook, fill in the blank. What should be driving us is not a command to worship and fast, but what should be driving us is brokenness by the Holy Spirit at work in us, revealing to us that our priorities are off. And as a result, we say, I want my priority to be and that's by the, by the Spirit, right? That's because the Spirit's at work in us. 
I desire Christ, and yet I see this instead. And so I'm going to radically amputate that out of my life for a period of time. And spend that time here instead. Not from a legalistic standpoint or a moralistic standpoint. I crave, I desire Jesus. And as the hunger pangs for that example in the food fasting, when the hunger pangs kick in, they remind us what? That Jesus is the bread that I want to know something about. Right? Isn't that right? Absolutely. Fasting is a good thing. And I think it's an appropriate thing. It's, and it's a lost thing. And what has happened in our church today, in the, I'm talking about the church generic today, is what, what people have done is either ignore it or they say, it must be done. And so it's either you must do it or it is, well, you know, that's just something that people did. I look at it and say, well, no. No, 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 you missed the whole point. Either end is a ditch. It's fellowship with Jesus, and as you fellowship with Jesus, guess what's going to happen? He's going to reveal all our screwed up priorities, right? We're going to recognize it, and and the Spirit's going to be at work in us, and we're going to say, ah, priorities are messed up. I need to give this up temporarily so I can focus on the one who loves me. And it's driven by His love, the love of Christ, not the law. Does that make sense? That's all I want to say about that. It's an important one. In fact, it's so important, it's mentioned again just a little bit. Verse 2 again, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, that means they fasted and prayed longer. Does that make sense? They fasted and prayed longer. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. That is Saul and Barnabas. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So they went to the synagogues. They went to the Jews to point out that that the Jews were in error. That the Messiah they'd been looking for had what? Had arrived and had come, born of a virgin, just like the prophets had prophesied, Isaiah 7, for example, and many other places. He lived, he suffered, he died as was prophesied, he was buried, he rose again, sin paid for, death and, and hell and, and, and Satan conquered, he rose again, and he has ascended back to, to the Father, the right hand of the Father, and he will return. This is their message. To the Jews, basically saying, you missed the whole point of the Old Testament. Now, that's a pretty offensive message, isn't it? To a Jew, that'd be a horribly offensive message. I want you to remember that. Just store it in the back of your mind. Horribly offensive message. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus mean son of Jesus or son of Joshua. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who had been a Roman. The proconsul had been a Roman. A man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this guy, Sergius Paulus, wanted to hear from Paul and Silas, or Saul and, and Barnabas, he wanted to hear the message that they were proclaiming that was clearly not the Jewish message he was hearing all along. And clearly not the message he was hearing from this Bar-Jesus character. Right? Make sense? But Elymas, the magician, for that is what is the meaning of his name, same guy, this Bar-Jesus character, opposed Saul and Barnabas seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the proconsul was intrigued by Saul and Barnabas' message. Make sense? He calls Saul and Barnabas in to tell him the gospel. This guy, Bar-Jesus, Elias, Elimus, 
He opposes, that means, that Elymas is in the meeting. Get the picture? And as Saul and Barnabas are speaking, Elymas, bar Jesus, is saying, no, that's not right. No, you're wrong. And trying to point out the various ways that Saul and Barnabas were wrong. Get the picture? It's kind of a raucous situation. It's an argument. Saul and Barnabas are trying to talk to the proconsul. Elymas is arguing with them. Got it? But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is, I would argue, is not a unique filling. It's just that he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's been worshiping God. He's an elder, right? He's been growing in his walk with Christ. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not Saul, the man who is really amazing. Does that make sense? This is not Saul, the guy who is just super intelligent. This is not Saul, the great theologian. This is not Saul, the great philosopher. This is not Saul, the great reasoner or the great debater. You get the picture? That's not it at all. This is Saul, the one filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what, what Luke means by that is, this is Saul, who is what? Controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, in other words, is at work in him. This is what happens. Really important we get this. What, what Luke means here is, this is what happens when the Spirit is at work in someone's life. Got it? Because too often we think, well, and I hear this all the time from people. I hear it all the time. People say, well, you know, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't know how to respond. Eh. Saul. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Contrasted with, I don't know how to respond. Saul. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, don't worry about what to say. You go. Don't worry about what to say. God will give you what to say. Part of the background of that is what? That the person is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's fellowshipping with the Lord, right? And fellowshipping in the Word. That's the point. That's the point. I mean, think it through. Let me just back off this for just one second. Think about this for a second. If I am a... A meteorologist. Make this up on the fly. If I'm a meteorologist, that means I understand weather, right? It means that I've studied weather, correct? And I understand weather patterns, highs, lows, colds, warm, fronts, on, on, on. I know how various weather patterns interact with other weather patterns, right? And today, if I'm a meteorologist, I also know how to read computers, right? And computer projection. And so I'm sitting at Starbucks, and I'm drinking my coffee, and a guy comes over, knowing I'm a meteorologist, and he starts talking about weather. And I disagree with what he's saying, his conclusions, and his premises, and his presuppositions. I find in my mind, I disagree with what he's saying. Get the picture? Do I sit there and say, man, I just don't know how to respond? Do I say, you know, I just don't know what to say? Do I find myself saying in my mind, ah, I just don't know how to answer that? Is that what happens? Well, no. As a meteorologist, for example, if it's January and I looked at the charts and I know that in three hours it's going to snow and it's going to be snowing buckets. And some guy comes in and says, well, you know, in three hours, I think it's going to hit 80 degrees. I know exactly what to say. Don't I? And I can even pull up charts and show him on my handy-dandy iPhone or my Samsung. And I can show him the charts. I can explain the charts to him. I can explain how cold fronts and warm fronts 
work. And I can explain to him that, that there's no way we're going to hit 80 degrees anyway because the sun's too far south on the, uh, uh, down by the equator. You know, on and on. Can I talk about that? Can't I have a long extended conversation? And can I submit to you, there's no Holy Spirit involved in that conversation at all. Is there? No, because that's not found in here. Right? How much more if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? How much more? Right? Especially if we understand the Scriptures expect that people who are fellowship with Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit are going to grow. How much more should we be able to say, no, no, wait, wait, no, the Scriptures don't say that. No, that's not an accurate presentation of the Scriptures. Does that make sense? Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> now, I know that's descriptive. But you see how I, this passage, you can say, yeah, it's descriptive what Paul or Saul's about ready to do, right? But you find that this description all the time in the Scriptures, don't you? As well as prescriptions that tie directly to it. But notice, this, notice what happens. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that is, Elymas, Bar-Jesus, and said, you son of the devil. <laughs> okay, can I just pause this one for a second? If I walked up to somebody today, and there's other Christians standing around, and I walked up to somebody who I was having an that was trying to interrupt an intense conversation of the gospel with somebody else, and they started acting like, like this Elimus character did, and if I turned to him and said, you son of the devil, what do you think most Christians would say to me today? No, what would they say, do you think? You can't say that. They would say, that's not very loving or nice. That's not very anything, right? That's not very, and here's the classic one. That's not very Christ-like. Right? No, but is it? Did Christ speak strongly? Oh my goodness, did He speak strongly. Aggressively. Brutally. Could I submit to you? He spoke sarcastically at people all the time. What does Saul do here? You son of the devil. That's his opening word to him. He looks at him intently and he says, you son of the devil. And it's not as, it's not as nice as you think it is. And it's not very nice, is it? Because what he said is a lot worse than you think it is. What's his name? Elymas. What is he called? Bar-Jesus. Son of Jesus. And he said, no. He's been talking about Jesus. You are not the son of Jesus. You are the son of the devil. That's what you are. That's his opening statement to this guy. Pretty bold, huh? You son of the devil, you enemy of all... He doesn't stop, right? He just ratchets it up a second time, doesn't he? You, what? Enemy of all righteousness. Kind of uh, brutal, isn't it? By the way, I don't feel the grace there, do you? you feel grace there? you sense grace in that statement? No. You know why? Because we've lost track of the story. It continues, by the way. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, which means there's no anything but deceit and villainy. You will not stop making, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And that, that's the end of the conversation, except for the condemnation. Right? And the consequences. And it's really easy to look at it and say, wow, there's no grace in that statement, is there? And I would submit to you, the reason why we see no grace in that statement is because we missed the story. Are you right there's no grace towards Elymas? 
You're right. There's no grace towards Elymas. Is there any mercy demonstrated by Saul towards Elymas? No. Why? Because all the grace and all the mercy is going where? To the pro-council. And Elymas, or Jesus, is merely the contrast of the foil to it all. And that's not unusual, by the way, in the Scriptures. That's not unusual. At all. All the people who died at Noah. In Noah's day. Were for what purpose? Did they receive mercy and grace? No. What was the purpose? To demonstrate the mercy and grace shown towards Noah. Absolutely. So we get to verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. But that's not the hand of the Lord you want. Because this is the Lord of hosts coming upon him, isn't it? And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is interesting. This is the first time since Saul first got converted and preached that we see him out there ministering, right? First real time. And what does he do? It's interesting what he does here. Because what he says is, you're going to be what? You're going to be blind, right? Did you hear? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. That sound familiar? That's exactly what happened to, to Saul. But the difference, the difference is in the first story there was a conversion, right? In this story there is a conversion as well, but it's not for Jesus, is it? Not here. You'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately the mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The one who was making crooked the straight paths of God began to what? Wander crooked paths. Doesn't he? He's blind. He's wandering crooked paths. And then verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's interesting. We've got to be careful with words here. I'm going to wrap it up on this. But what's interesting, listen to it again. Then the proconsul believed, and then it says, when, that is believed in Jesus, when he saw what had occurred, and what had occurred is what? The blindness, right? But then it goes on, for he was what? Was he astonished at the blindness? No. What caused him to believe? The teaching. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The blindness issue, it's described, he saw it, right? But he's astonished at the word proclaimed. The word he'd received and so the proconsul becomes saved. Just some things to see in the text that are very important to see and very important to recognize that have very strong applications. What kind of applications? It's expected that, that Christians grow. Grow quickly. Grow maturity. Grow into eldership-esque type of people. It's expected that people find a growing, on the one hand, love for Jesus, love for God. On the other hand, a grieving over their condition which would cause them to start, start to lay aside things that are keeping them from the one they love. Does that make sense? It's, it should be expected that that would happen. It should be expected that those who are maturing in Christ and mature in Christ will find opposition. Right? Because people want not straight paths, but crooked paths. It is expected that those who are maturing and maturing Christ will boldly speak the truth. Boldly. Un unwaveringly. 
at high cost. And sometimes it's not very nice. Sometimes it's not very nice at all. As a matter of fact, the Word of God is described as a sword, isn't it? And so we should recognize that and not be afraid of that. Just some observations for us to chew on. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Lord, help us. It is interesting how easily and how quickly we start modifying our understanding of the church, our understanding of Christianity, our understanding of faith, our understanding of faithfulness in light of the culture that we find ourselves living in. Instead, Lord, I pray that you will help us to, by the Holy Spirit, recognize the truth of what true Christianity is. Change our hearts. Help us to see us, ourselves for who we really are and to see Christ as who He really is. And then, Lord, by Your Spirit, I pray You will help us to respond because You are a great and awesome and at the same time fearsome God. So we ask You to glorify Yourself. In Your name I pray. Amen.